Hi there, I'm Katie Irving, and I'm here to welcome you to the inaugural HOW Shift podcast. For all of you who know HOW Shift, welcome back. And for those of you who don't, HOW Shift is a specialist team of applied behavioral science experts within the primary healthcare market research agency, HOW. Now, our team have multidisciplinary backgrounds in psychology, health psychology, behavioral economics, neurolinguistic programming, and counseling cognitive behavioral therapy. Our role on projects is to be the link to the wider evidence basis, adding specific expertise to help frame the challenges that brands face and recommend evidence-based solutions. This podcast was born out of the conversations that we're having within the HOW Shift team about market research applications for validated academic or commercial frameworks, and we recorded this episode in our New York office. It features three members of the HOW Shift team. John Maher, who has a master's degree in psychology, Ali Dottrich, who has an academic background in behavioral economics, and me, who, like Ali, has expertise in applied behavioral economics. This podcast is on the Big Five personality scale, and our format is very conversational. It's a forum for discussion and an open door to further evolution of these ideas with our peers and our clients. In our conversation, we'll introduce the topic, we'll discuss our own results, and then we'll talk about our thinking on potential applications for research for our clients. And for the Big Five, this includes segmentation research, matching personalities in group or duo interviews, and as a tool to identify values that your brand can communicate in marketing through virtue signaling. Now, we apologize for the poor audio quality and points, so please bear with us as we get used to this format. Hope you enjoy. So, well, should we say hello? Yes. <laughs> All right. So, hello, it's the HW Shift team coming to you from New York City, live in Manhattan, where we're all actually together in the same room. So. You're hearing Katie. Yeah, and you're going to be hearing from John as well. And, and Ali as well. For this podcast, we thought it would be really interesting to talk about personality, and in particular something called the Big Five model of personality. And it's something that I think crops up a lot in market research. And I'm really interested in trying to understand how personality links to what we hear in feedback, or maybe we do a lot of work around branding or communications. Giddy old voice over why we find it so interesting and why we're talking about it, but to give you an overview, um, as it's probably, I know Ali, it's a new concept to you, the Big Five. It's not something that you've really come across before. Yeah, this is all gonna be new for me today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it might be new for a lot of our listeners as well, so yeah. it'd be useful to kind of hear what it is. Sure. So basically, this is something that started by um, two people called Costa and McRae ran a massive meta-analytical study where they tried to map as many different personality constructs as they could and see where they sort of overlapped and find out what the main constructs are. And through a technique called factor analysis, which I don't know if you're really familiar with or have ever done. Only, yeah. Only as a precursor to regression analysis yeah. to understand correlations and data. <laughs> Understanding how things cluster together, yeah. trying to find out at what point you can stop and say there's no more clusters, essentially. And that's where they landed. In terms of personality, they found that we're mapping onto five clusters. And they summarized that using the acronym OCEAN. So OCEAN is an easy way to remember what the big five are. So you've got O for OCEAN is openness to experience. 
it's your tendency to kind of think in an abstract way, uh, be interested in new things, associative thinking. Um, you'll see a lot of maybe questions when you do the big five on like art, <laughs> things like that, like philosophy. It's kind of your outside of the box thinking or just openness to new experiences, uh, trying new things essentially. And you've got conscientiousness as well. So that is your ability to exercise self-discipline. So you'll get a lot of questions when you do the big five around uh, very organized, I do my to-do list immediately, or I only do things at the last minute, that sort of thing. So they find that that was another big cluster. I execute my plans. I execute my plans, yeah, like all that fun stuff. Then you've got E for extroversion. So extroversion and introversion, like the classic two, like the, the classic spectrum in psychology, mm -hmm. if your extroverts are your outgoing kind of life and soul of the party people, they get their dopamine rush from interacting with people, making people laugh. Yeah. Uh, but then introversion is your kind of, like your Sheldon Cooper Big Bang Theory <laughs> idea of not quite into socializing, that sort of thing, like um, mm -hmm. inwardly thinking rather than outwardly. But it is a continuum. You could land on either side. You could land in the middle and kind of show signs of introversion mm -hmm. and extroversion. And the continuum element is what's really important about the big five. Like this is what you have, like what Costa McRae realizes that people are always going to fall. And this happens in psychology, even with mental illness as well. Yeah. You can't camp into one or the other. Like it is a continuum, you will fall on a spectrum essentially. So you'll show signs of introversion and extroversion. Yeah. <laughs> so that's your E, so you've got O, C, E, then you've got A. So A is agreeableness. So <laughs> this is, your tendency to put others' needs ahead of your own, basically, mm -hmm. and to cooperate rather than be combative. It's quite a straightforward one, agreeableness, in mm. terms of your likelihood to spark an argument and just disagree for the sake of it, or your likelihood to really take on board what other people say and essentially agree. It could be for sociability, maybe. Mm. You know, just being a very agreeable person. And finally, you've got N for neuroticism. So. This is a really interesting one. We were kind of talking about this before. Um, it's a bit of a controversial one, neuroticism. You know, it does come from way back to Freudian times and yeah, like psychoanalysis and that sort of thing where um, essentially if you're said to be highly neurotic, um, you've probably got a higher tendency to report experiencing um, negative emotions. That could be things like fear, sadness, anxiety, guilt, or shame, all the fun emotions. But again, spectrum, yeah. mood influenced, um, scenario influenced as well. You know, So I think it's just your tendency to experience those, perhaps maybe even when there isn't an obvious external stimuli as well. Yeah. People who are more guilty of really needing to see evidence that they can do something, as opposed to someone who just is extremely confident and yeah. feels like I'll nail that first time. Yeah. And that's that's really interesting as well because like you say, with the spectrum nature of these elements, you know, that speaks a lot to the importance of context, which we acknowledge in all the other mm. domains, but you know, particularly for things like self doubt, mm. like you say, in the neuroticism camp. Yeah. Um, 
and maybe you know someone high on the neuroticism scale might still have that self-doubt even with overwhelming evidence to suggest they shouldn't like they're yeah. good at something but they might still be that person that you hear who says i'm just not good at this oh i know a lot of people like that <laughs> yeah yes yeah, yeah so yeah, yeah how you react to evidence essentially yeah no it was interesting when you were talking through because one of the things that stood out to me from that background is that i didn't realize that it origins were, I was about to say ancient, are so ancient, <laughs> the 40s isn't ancient. Back to the um, sun first. Yeah, no one was alive then. But yeah, I didn't realize that it was, the original meta-analysis was so old, because the, the yeah. talk that we saw from Jeffrey Miller, which mm. I'll talk about in a second, talked about the validation for this and how actually the strength of the big five is that a lot of the academic evidence has continued to support this, even when other personality-based yeah. assessments yeah. have fallen by the wayside or yeah. been disproven by by other analyses. The reason, as John mentioned, the reason that we started talking about this is because um, John and I went to the um, Festival of Behavior Change, Nudge Stock, in um, Folkestone in Kent. Um, and there's a presentation from Jeffrey Miller, who's a professor at um, University of Nevada, I think. Um, and he was essentially talking about what he described as virtue signaling and the mm. way in which brands align with their customer group's values or virtues and adjust their branding or create their brand identity so that it really fits with their customers' values. And in particular, he honed in on a couple of brand attributes that related to the Big Five. And he talked about the academic validity of the Big Five mm -hmm. and how it's um, <clears throat> the most robust academic personality framework, I think was how he yeah. framed it. Yeah. But he gave examples of how brands signal on openness. So he talked about Benetton and their kind of very um, multicultural, multicultural yeah, uh, campaigns um, and then on the other end of that spectrum, brands like Ford, um, which is a bit more kind of stereotypical and traditional. Um, and we also, yeah, looked at a YouTube um, video of one of his lectures where he talked a little bit about the political campaigns and how in mm -hmm. particular the most recent U.S. election and um, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump um, both had very... Um, different campaigns when it comes to, I think that was around openness as well in particular. Yeah, and the virtue signaling factor of kind of, you know, yeah. the type of messages that Donald Trump was putting forward, or I think even like the concise type of messaging mm. yeah. that was coming through in his campaign versus Hillary Clinton's, which yeah. was a little more even um, just not as direct or a little more encompassing, which yeah. kind of led to some, some different types of communications in that political sphere. Yeah, like his like the time that we saw his talk was really on point as well because mm. like not to go down a big virtue signaling hole but like the branding thing though will always be that's kind of they're using that in a different way though that's appealing yeah. to a customer base yeah which in what we do that could be high um farm companies market their treatments or their role in the treatment journey yeah through their communications and yeah and that was kind of what was really exciting about hearing that talk is that you know, in the communications work that we do, you know, the the messaging uh, around brands has a lot of potential and to try and better align with people's values or personality. And I guess there is more potential for brands to try and appeal to. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of the different biases and heuristics that we're identifying, like as the shift team through our research too, a lot can be kind of contributed to these baseline, maybe personality traits and thoughts in that way and kind of ways that messaging is applied or thought about. Yeah. Yeah, and I think also, you know, there's some recent research in the, again, in the political space, Kelly, mm -hmm. this is all coming back to politics, so interesting. Mm. Um, might be an important kind of caveat because I think a lot of our um, pharma clients don't, you know, they, again, it's not necessarily the type of brand that would necessarily be politically virtue signaling. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's been some recent research on um, how to most effectively frame your message to change people's mind about politics, which is obviously one of the more difficult areas to change people's minds around. They said it ultimately kind of boiled down to values and the values in which you couch your argument. So yeah. the example that they gave was that when people frame their argument for a political belief, they typically enclose their argument in the values that they hold as an individual. So right. if I were going to make the argument um, as a liberal for gay marriage, I would say, oh, it's because everyone should have the same rights, which mm -hmm. is maybe more around kind of openness or fairness, which are stereotypical liberal values. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, if I were conservative and I was trying to frame that argument, I would say, well, they can serve in the military and so they, and they are also Americans or they are also Britons and they should have the same rights as everyone else. And so that would be kind of around patriotism and um, service to country and those kinds of values that are more stereotypically conservative. Yeah. And they found that what was interesting was not only do people frame their argument in the context of their own values, but that those arguments were more effective, like the argument, regardless of what direction the argument was, was more effective in changing people's beliefs when it was framed in the context of that person's values. Yeah. So that, I think, has a lot of learnings from a um, market research and message framing perspective. And I wonder whether this big five could be an effective way of uncovering or yeah, mapping the values that we uncover back to a validated framework. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's 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 very important in personality is the validated framework yeah. element, and yeah, it really hit home for me when, when Jeffrey Miller referenced it. Kind of, cause I don't think they ever set like obviously to put a high openness or conscientiousness on the big five message out. If you yeah. know what I mean, it's just they've used the framework to yeah. interpret it within that framework, which is really interesting to see them kind of spontaneously do that. Yeah, that's a really good point as well, is whether all of the specific examples that we can find are accidental, yeah. essentially, in virtue signaling, or whether, I mean, it, and obviously they could have derived an effective campaign using another framework that also mm -hmm. just happens to overlap. But yeah, that's a really interesting point. And, it, and it, the other interesting point, I think that, like you said, John, that we were kind of discussing just before we started recording was around whether different elements within the big five have more or less potential because all of these mm. examples that we've been talking about have been kind of around openness and yeah. and i was having a conversation with some clients who are um working in the healthcare consumer space and they were saying that they use this framework a lot from a marketing perspective 
but that they drop off neuroticism because they don't feel like neuroticism is an appropriate virtue for a brand to signal. But I don't, I don't know whether that's necessarily, yeah, fair because I, I don't know whether it's just a branding problem for neuroticism. I mean, all of the emotions that you described are negative. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult to ever say our brand is sad and aloof. Our brand is about self-doubt. I always find that it's like, yeah, people would brand themselves in that. Like, you might get, like, stand-up comedians and stuff who are like, yeah, right, so, like... Or it was, like, Woody Allen was always one who's, like, high neuroticism, like, crippling self-doubt. It's an endearing characteristic for a person Mm -hmm. sometimes, if you can relate to it, but... It's not you're not going to identify with it in a kind of marketing buying scenario. Yeah. Although um, I wonder too. Yeah, like depending on what therapy area you're in, or like what type of um, consumer base you are talking about. Like mm-hmm. I think there is also thinking about these things, right? Being aware of that uh, is something you might want to match as a brand, right? If you're talking about something that's like a sleepiness treatment or a depression treatment or something that maybe you need to be more sensitive of something. But I also wonder whether there's disruptive potential for a brand to embrace more things like that because, so I'm thinking of a particular example. I think it's Lucozade in the UK. Um, has some ads that are like, um, that say things like, look at this ad while you wait for the bus. Now, I appreciate that's not neuroticism, but they're kind of acknowledging the marketing nature of their materials, and it shows a little bit of self-doubt and a little bit of um, almost what um, Robert Caldini has written a lot recently about the Pratt fall effect and how Mm -hmm. if you kind of admit your failings up front, people find you a lot more credible. Right, yeah. And I almost wonder whether there is more potential to for brands to take almost more of a collaborative approach with customers by saying, okay, here's where we are not great, mm. or here's where we really fall down. It's difficult to imagine that, though. I feel like, yeah. a, a, it would never survive in a pharma company's <laughs> marketing yeah. team. Like, I cannot imagine that going down well, yeah. like, that, that would be very courageous, and it might, you know, backfire horrendously, but I do wonder whether there's... Yeah, you could see it in, like, quirky consumerism, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah that's or, what I was thinking, someone's got a big too. rival, like, yeah. Coke, Pepsi idea, I think that, like, brands like that have done... Or even, like, the Mac PC, yeah, yeah, right, yeah are, like, yeah. totally embracing... Yeah, their own flaws. Yeah, their brand personalities. Yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 It is very pervasive, neuroticism, mm-hmm. like it is, you know, it's in a lot of personality series. Is this when we talk about your personality test results <laughs> on the big five, John? <laughs> yeah, good, good um, segue into my <laughs> secret <laughs> So, if I was to go through the ocean, I'm at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, so we all took the big five before we started recording. And we can put the uh, link so that you can see yeah. your own results in the um, show notes as well, because it is interesting not only to see what your results are, but yeah. also to um, see what the questions are like and the kind of parameters they like to assess. Yeah, okay. exactly. So you can take a very quick, um, I think it's a condensed version that we took. I think there can be longer, yeah, more thorough versions with lots of items. The one we took was about 
30 items or something? It wasn't yeah. too long, and it's just a five-point scale of the extent to which this is accurate or inaccurate about you. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so if I, I'll start at the top, I'll start a bit happier with the O. So um, I scored very highly on openness to experience at 98%, so wow. you can't get more open than me, <laughs> <laughs> technically. Yes, it, as it's described here, it describes my tendency to think in abstract and complex ways, uh, prone to associative thinking, meaning that they readily see the relationships between things. So um, that does describe surprisingly you. being in an analytical role, they have a tick chart here of creative, imaginative, adventurous, intellectual, unconventional, artistically inclined. Yeah. So it depends how you define a lot of those things. I can't draw, so am I artistically inclined? I can't well, but, play an instrument. Well, like you, like you said, so I scored 73% um, on openness, so it was one of my lower parameters. Mm. But I think I defined it, so a lot of the questions in the assessment were about art. Yeah. And I defined art very narrowly, maybe just because I'm in New York City yeah. over the weekend and I did not go to any art museums at all. Oh yeah, I literally and I was like, past the Met, <laughs> didn't go in, so yeah. no openness to the Met. <laughs> yes. So I think when I saw the definition of you are interested in the arts yeah. and that kind of thing, I defined it very narrowly as in traditional art. But you made the good point, John, that that could be music, it could be about other forms of self-expression. It doesn't have to be just like art. Cause, <laughs> yeah, because I've, I've like trained myself when I see questions like that on psychology things, it's like this doesn't apply to your idea of art genre of like paintings. Yeah. This is a good point because we can talk about in a bit about how these scales are open to interpretation. Open to interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. So the next one, the sea. The sea in your deep ocean, John. <laughs> I am moderately conscientious. And I scored sixty-eight percent on that. So conscientiousness is your ability to exercise self-discipline and control in order to pursue goals. High scorers are organized and determined and are able to forego immediate gratification for the sake of long-term achievement. So I'm quite surprised that I scored quite lowly on that. I thought I would have scored higher. Because I got 78%, which they classified as high. My thought when I read that was um, that's going to be linked to my high score neuroticism and self-doubt. Interesting. And self-evaluation, I think. You think they were connected? I think my, my apparent high score in neuroticism might have influenced my apparent low score on conscientiousness, as in my self-criticism hmm. and my ability to be organized and do things on time. Because so I think if I was to objectively ask someone that is, say, on a team, on a project that I work on, I don't think I would get a lot of reports for missing deadlines or anything like no. that. So objectively, they would probably say, no, you're high on that. Yeah. But I maybe looking at a, a different... Yeah, that could make because this, um, the conscientiousness was my highest. I was 93% at this mm. one, but I was also, the neuroticism was my lowest too. So there might be some sort of interesting relationship there. Yeah, and, and exactly like you say, John, as well about how your self-doubt might have influenced the way that you scored yourself because I think that's one of the main limitations of this in addition to potentially um, people's interpretation of the questions mm -hmm. is that it is a self-assessment measure so I would agree that um, people who are rating you would probably rate you more highly and this to me begs the question about 
the influence of culture as well, because I think Ali and I as Americans probably also are more kind of ingrained to have more confidence, mm. potentially lower neuroticism in general, but also on particular scores like things of, you know, meeting deadlines, etc. Yeah. I wonder how much just the scale effect and the differences in culture and scales yeah. might play an impact. Because we might have be... been more willing to put the tick all the way on sure. the five side rather than on four, like, yeah, I do that most of the time. Oh, you would be hitting well. a crippling Irish self-talking group. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like very few of my percentages were actually in the middle like I skewed very high or very low I agree and so I wonder too like how that impacts the different results so on extroversion on the E um that was a quite high one for me I got 80 percent for that one 80 80 percent yeah so they described that as high mm-hmm. um so people who are high in extroversion tend to be friendly gregarious adventurous enthusiastic and ambitious in my opinion, that is linked to openness scale. I think yes. if you're going to get high on one, you're very likely to get high on the other. Although I guess you could, I mean, you could imagine someone who is very open and highly neurotic but introverted. Oh, totally. You could have scored really highly on all those hard questions, but low on sort of social integration style questions. Yeah. So you would still get a high score on openness to philosophy and art, but you like thinking about that your own. Yeah, yeah, they're the quite like I'm more idea driven versus social interaction. Yeah. So I think that is the point of the factor analysis should be that they are distinct but definitely correlated as well. Mm -hmm. You know, they are so we move on to the A. Yeah. As we descend through my ocean of personality. I love (laughs) this. Um so I'm moderate in agreeableness, but moderate at seventy three percent, which I disagree with. Quite yeah, see, I wonder too though, so like the, what was the previous one, the ex, the introverted extroverted, so I was 73% an extroverted, but yeah. that was considered high, so I wonder I like, that's based on the population. exactly yeah. like that's where the population yeah. falls out. Yeah, I think so, I think it is based on whatever this particular site has used as their demographic. There, there is like a, a scoring tool where you can mm-hmm. see, so I think these, yeah. Their assessment of moderates. You're moderate. So moderate. Um, describes agreeableness. Now, it's, it's not quite what you expect, actually. It describes a person's tendency to put others' needs ahead of their own and to cooperate rather than compete with others. People who are high in agreeableness experience a great deal of empathy and tend to get pleasure of serving and taking care of others. They're usually trusting and forgiving. Yeah, I'm really surprised <laughs> by like not scoring higher than that. Yeah. Um, that is interesting because also I scored very, I scored highly on this. You scored highly. I scored moderate, moderate on this oh. one, sixty percent. But yeah, that's I think especially too in talking about this one and agreeableness, like it also super depends on how someone was willing to answer these questions. And I totally. think too, like with behavioral, right? You're thinking like how much of this is voluntary automatic reaction or how much we've corrected ourselves, right? So if I'm in a working environment, I think I'd answer these a lot more agreeably than talking about sports, right? I might be more competitive or depending on the framing totally. of the question, mm-hmm. like right. you might shift and kind of change how we answer these questions or think about these things completely and that's why in that respect I'm quite surprised because I was high at 85% agreeable Mm. but that this description does not seem to fit me as much as I 
would expect mm. based on just the title of agreeableness on its own. Yeah. I like to think that I'm an agreeable person. <laughs> um, this, you know, putting others' needs ahead of their own and, oh, you know, overwhelming an empathy, mm. I don't think necessarily describes me. I also wonder whether this has some relation to social conditioning in male and female as mm. well, um, because, you know, stereotypically women are higher in empathy and kindness and putting others' needs before their own and sensitivity. Yeah. Um, but I think it might also, again, relate back to the way that the questions are asked, because from memory, there were a lot of questions about insulting people. Oh, and yes. I don't insult people, but I don't overwhelm an empathy either. <laughs> so I, I went very low on the, like, mm. do you insult people questions, and I think yeah. it may have skewed my overall results to be more empathetic than I think I necessarily am. Sure. Yeah, I've just read my description in a bit more detail, and I said that my moderate score indicates that I'm fairly typical in the degree to which I balance my own interests with the interests of others. You're probably willing to sacri sacrifice yourself for others some of the time, but you also watch out for yourself quite a bit. I feel a bit better about that. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that um, so they've sort of... Yeah, and I think the cultural implications too, right, of kind of what's acceptable in a culture for being agreeable might even be different, you know, between the U.S. and the U.K. or like where we're coming from in these different work cultures. Yeah, absolutely. This also relates back to um, the phenomenon of how people can take general personality-based feedback, so um, the Barnum effect, um, and the way in which people take general feedback about their personality and really internalize it and are more likely to consider it accurate mm -hmm. when it's framed as being about them. So this is often used as like the reason why people believe horoscopes or other mm -hmm. yeah. astrology, aura readings, palm reading, yeah. fortune telling. Um, mm -hmm. They use the phrase cold reading a lot, which is the ability to say something which sounds incredibly specific in a very non-specific way. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it could apply to a number of things, but it feels intensely personal. Yeah. So I think that's a really interesting point about how you can kind of, the levels which you invest on these results yeah. might be based on the extent to which you kind of relate to that being very specific yeah. to your own. And I think also the degree to which it's framed in a positive mm. way, in that, you know, the way that you just talked about your agreeableness assessment, you know, you're about as as selfless as you need to be whilst also mm. looking out for yourself is an incredibly generic statement yeah. that, that also is, n is non-specific in terms of its levels, Yeah. right? You know, yeah, like there's yeah. a comedian, uh, George Carlin, who has mm. a bit about how anybody who drives slower than you is an idiot and anybody who drives faster than you is a maniac. And, <laughs> you know, it, and that's pretty much the way that we always uh, relate to the world around us. Yeah. So if you yeah. frame it as like, you're about as selfless as you need to be or you're yeah, about as yeah. agreeable as you need to be or as empathetic as you should be like mm. everyone's gonna go yes a hundred percent that is yeah, me, that's me. Yeah. so again yeah i think it depends in the way that it's framed back and obviously if we apply this in research we're not looking to frame it back to people and uh, you know get them to validate their personality oh, yeah, yeah. types but in the way that we interpret our own results, it's mm -hmm. interesting to see how much we fall prey. As we hit the bottom of my shame well, apparently, to my high levels of neuroticism. <laughs> so I scored 65%, which is deemed to be high on neuroticism. So this is a person's tendency to experience negative emotions, including fear, sadness, anxiety, guilt, and shame. 
while everyone experiences these emotions from time to time, people high in the neurotic system seem especially prone to them. High neurotic scorers seem to react more strongly to situations and events that have the potential to provoke negative emotions, e.g. Herbert, a comment from a colleague as an insult. High neuroticism people have emotional systems that are on high alert, looking for danger and peril at every turn. What's interesting is that um, high neuroticism people have emotional systems that are on high alert. You could read that from a psychological, like, I do, I, I can't see a lot of myself in that explanation. I was going to say, actually, how um, accurate do you feel that is as a yeah, description of yourself? I, I think, I think it is. Like, I think people that know me as well is that I can get very, like, frustrated by, like, things that kind of go wrong that are outside of my control. Like that really winds me up. It goes back to like another psychological theory, it's like the locus of control and that mm -hmm. sort of thing where if you feel that your world is influenced by things outside of your control, that can be a very frustrating world to live in. Whereas if you feel that you are very much, you have a very internal locus of control and you feel that you have control over everything, then things that go wrong may irritate you more or may not. You know, it sort of depends on where your locus is. Yeah. And. Uh, I can see a lot of like the looking for danger or danger and peril at every turn, but that surprises me then that my level of conscientiousness and planning wasn't higher because I would interpret that as, yeah, I can see threats, but I don't see it in a bad way as in, ah, threats, like danger, yeah. as, you know, as in like to myself, danger is in terms of harm. It could be more danger in terms of a flaw in a plan yeah. or something. Like I think I do think like that. Like I am that person that's like, have we thought about this? Have we thought about this? Yeah, yeah. Pre-morning everything. Yeah, pre-morning, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's why I thought it was interesting too that like the conscientiousness descriptor seemed to be so lacking in emotion. I don't know, like the way that I read that, it seemed to be like kind of removing that emotional piece. And I don't know if that all kind of got put into here, right? Because then I wonder kind of how, yeah, those two play. Or I had such a high conscientiousness score, but such a low um, neuroticism score, which mm -hmm. to me, those seem like they should be high, like more direct relationship with one another then it seems to be kind of an inverse relationship yeah at least the way that i've seen my scores play out yeah and really mine as well yeah. Yeah. yeah i've just kind of looked at the description in more detail because they give you a lot of paragraphs around neuroticism <laughs> <laughs> so the final one which kind of sums up what we were saying um while neuroticism is not generally thought of as an asset there are positive points People high in neuroticism are unlikely to overlook the perils of life and tend to be realistic about the problems and limitations of, of the world. There is also some evidence that neuroticism can push people to higher levels of achievement, provided they are generally well adjusted. Yeah. Which goes back to what I was kind of saying. And also potentially does create an opportunity for um, brands to embrace it as a disruptive identity. One that came into my, ha my head was, when we were talking about it earlier, was like insurance. Yeah. Well, that's what everything that, yeah, that we're talking about now just reminds me of like loss aversion and prospect theory so and something much. that we've related yeah. like so much of our behavioral things to. It's that, that fear of loss is such a motivating factor driving change as opposed to, you know, just kind of liking something or agreeing with it, that kind of agreeableness as opposed to this like very much driven by um, someone's risk averse or that sense yeah. of loss. That's a yeah. really, really good point. And, you know, there's so much evidence on how powerful and galvanizing it can be and, and yeah so I, I disagree with the consumer brand that thinks that we should drop the neuroticism off <laughs> in from a marketing perspective but I do think it would take a lot of courage and you'd have to be the right brand.
So it's kind of all well and good then talking about the big five, but something that we want to talk about was where can we actually apply it in market research? Yeah. And what ideas would we have in terms of utilizing this and trying to make it something that would help us or could, could it be a lens in which we interpret things or could it be a tool that we could use to our advantage? So we had some ideas beforehand and something that we were thinking about was segmentation questions mm -hmm. and building the big five into segmentation. So yeah, you have a personality skill in there to show the likelihood to have certain views, which is an interesting world because segmentation is going, it's doing a very similar thing yeah. to the big five and um, a lot of the segments that you get, I would hazard a guess that openness would define a lot of them, like openness and closeness is often a, a dominant segment in terms of prescribing, say, or yeah. treatments, or being a visionary for the future. So yeah, it's trying to think about, you know, how would we be utilizing that? You know, would you be tailoring rep calls to certain personalities of physicians based on the big five, mm -hmm. uh, and trying to understand their motivations? and Yeah, so. and I guess you could potentially use, like you say, openness as a, a leading indicator for brands that are just entering the market. Although the application through segmentation is obvious because it's about typing people and yeah. categorizing people, and this is a tool and a framework with which we could do that. But my concern kind of relates back to what we were talking about in relation to the applicability in that you could have a variety of different levels on this, mm -hmm. on each of these parameters. And although we could take into account the methodological limitations and make sure we're assessing people in context and mm -hmm. asking them specifically in relation to, you know, you're prescribing in this therapy area, mm -hmm. how do you fit on these things and therefore make sure it's really relevant and about their personality in that context. I still worry that we might end up with loads of components or loads of typologies. But I guess you just yeah. take the dominant one. So you'd essentially strip out, you know, that like if agreeableness is not relevant, then it just doesn't feed into the segmentation. Like yeah. you layer it in and see whether it's a leading indicator in, that relates to other important brand related parameters. Yeah. So it kind of got me thinking that it could be more useful. Something that we sometimes don't think about a lot. Um, or could think about more is the actual recruitment process mm -hmm. and using it as a way of segmenting people um, that we want to speak to. You know, we have screening questions, you, you, you want to make sure that they're doing the right thing, you're speaking to the right people, mm -hmm. but who is to say that you don't end up in a six IDI central location speaking to six people with very similar frames of mind and personalities, which yes. isn't representative of the real world yeah. and isn't representative of the people that you will actually see in the real world. In the real world. Is it, are you interested in hearing views from a spectrum of personalities mm -hmm. and then writing your findings from that spectrum as well mm -hmm. and interpreting it through a personality lens that this is what people, these types of personalities like about your product and what might appeal better to mm -hmm. people with these certain types of personalities. You, your key account managers might recognize these traits in the people that they know very well by the stage in their career. Yeah. And that would be able to tailor what they see so you could structure interviewing a bit more, I guess, is what I was saying in terms of, right, we're going to get a very open questions like this into a screener. Yeah, the nice thing about the Big Five is they 
are recognizable characteristics. You know, we were kind of joking about how when we were going through the questionnaire, there were some questions that absolutely called to mind, you know, particular colleagues. But if you ask me about any of the people that I'm close to, I could probably get a sense of kind of which characteristics are dominant or where they might fall on these spectrums. So mm -hmm. it would make it quite actionable for account managers once they are familiar with, with the framework in recognizing customers that fit into those. Something else that we kind of thought of was the different methodologies that we have. We talk about something sometimes called conflict duos, where you actually want to actively have two people in a room to debate each other. And you can do that based on, there's different ways you can do that. You can do it based on advocates and non-advocates of treatment to say is an easy way to do that. But sometimes if you maybe have a study where you're struggling to find a differentiator between two people, would you ever consider doing it on personality? Because um, that can be a hard thing to screen for cold. You know, if you have a recruiter who's just kind of, what we, what was your take on that person's personality? You know, how do you yeah. think they will be in the interview? But maybe this is a metric have them do and say you know we've got people on opposite ends of the scale um a debate exercise essentially yeah. so two people low on agreeableness or yeah. yeah people who are a bit more argumentative yeah or something that i've come across a lot in group interviewing is that we always want to have people there who are going to be very engaged or very creative and will help us say map journeys mm. your introversion extroversion scale there is a really easy win in terms mm -hmm. of if you're getting more introverted people, it doesn't always make for a great group interview. It could be a screening tool where you don't have to do a whole big five, you could do one scale if that's yeah. what you're interested in. And then maybe the more introverted people would be more suitable for the individual interviewing. It doesn't have to be an analytical lens. But I think the big one that we started talking about at the beginning was the communications testing and its link to virtue signaling and messaging and branding and that sort of thing, which is something that we get involved in a lot. I think that's a really interesting area. Yeah. yeah, and for that type of application, it would almost have to come down to what are the dominant traits within your customer population as a whole. So mm -hmm. rather than almost using this in the way that it's really beneficial, which is appreciating the differences in personality within an individual customer group, it's more looking at kind of what are some of the traits that they all share, at least, and again, contextually in relation to this particular condition, in relation to this particular class, whatever, and then using that to really signal to them that your brand is in line with those traits. Is there research on whether individuals with similar characteristics relate well to each other? Like I'm wondering also from a sales perspective, mm -hmm. you know, John, you referenced the sales force and how they could recognize the different traits. I'm wondering whether they could also almost ad adopt those traits with those customer groups or when they're communicating about the brand to make the message more compelling. Oh, like, they, like they could virtue signal yeah. as well and how they communicate it. Yeah, representatives could look to use that to strengthen the bond that they have with the individual or strengthen the bond that they're helping the individual build with the brand, mm. whether that's maybe a step too far. Which is why it's kind of interesting to go through our results as a group because I think mm. you know the three of us we all get along really well and um yet you know, the, the odd one out the old things, yeah. yeah but yeah we all like relate well to each other mm. um so I wonder whether it, whether it's about agreement on those traits or complementary on those traits yeah it's interesting because we are all scoring moderate to high though. true it'd be yeah. really interesting if we had someone sat here who was like the complete opposite ends of the spectrum so yeah. well it might be interesting actually what what we should do 
then, and we can maybe share the results in our next podcast, is um, do it across the HW team really and see how much variety we get because I think that's that may be interesting in telling as well, you know, like we were talking about in relation to what's classified as high and what's classified as moderate and that that's got to be in relation to the overall aggregate of the people mm -hmm. that have taken this test either on this particular website or in general mm -hmm. um, and whether there is a tendency and I find with these kind of self-assessment scales in general, I often have high agreement to most everything. I mean, you could be high on literally all of these traits. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing, is that because it's a spectrum and it's not a trade-off exercise, yeah. I can be all of the things. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see as well that essentially we are all researchers, so you would expect... Yeah, I was going to say that. I wonder like how much of where we're falling in similar places is part of like what attracted us to market research or how we ended up here. and. Yeah. Maybe what those trends are across the company. Yeah, like three people in a behavioral sciences unit likely <laughs> to have relatively <laughs> similar traits, but then. Yeah, let's do that. Because yeah. that'll just be, it'll be really interesting to see how people react and also whether they discover any other different interpretations of the questions or have any other kind of observations about how they are classified that either jive or don't jive with their mm. self-perception. I do think it does have some potential. What we need to kind of boil down is, because it does seem like there's a few dominant characteristics like openness definitely has a lot of applications, mm -hmm. um, introversion and extroversion, some applications potentially um, agreeableness, but less so with conscientiousness and neuroticism, I find mm. that a bit more difficult to see the applications I wonder, I don't know, I'm super curious about the neuroticism one. So that's the one that like did trigger in my mind like so much about risk and a risk aversion and like the emotional True. component. And I I do wonder like how much of it being tainted as or labeled as neuroticism has like tainted my or our views of it, right? And yeah. I don't know, I'm super, I'm still trying to wrap my head around that one, but yeah, words that come like with that it's like carefree optimistic relaxed self-confident or calm and I would think if we're talking about like treatments mm -hmm. something like self-confidence or you know like that's something that would be really important to be considering those that's, types of things yeah that's a great point actually and that when I was thinking about virtue signaling I was usually thinking about high on all of these parameters mm -hmm. but low neuroticism actually is a component and thinking about um, like the last four positioning studies I've done, yeah. elements of those components have been the emotional benefits that those brands are looking to signal. Potentially low neuroticism could be a brand signal that the brands could produce. Or like you say, using high neuroticism as a tool for loss aversion, getting people actually motivated to do something about it. But I do think, I do think the fact that it has got such robust origins and validation does give it a lot of promise. And I think one of the things that we obviously tried to do as the shift team is pull in existing well-validated frameworks mm -hmm. to apply as a lens to the market research environment. And this one certainly has some really obvious applications. I'm excited about the communication application and yeah. virtue signaling approach like Jeffrey Miller talked about. But I don't know. Do you guys buy brands that are related to your person? I feel like I've never consciously done it, but no. I don't know. I think that's the whole point, is that it's all a bit unconscious. 
Well, yeah. Right. Yeah. This is definitely worth um, more exploration and more kind of conversations with our clients. So hopefully um, this podcast kind of opens the door for that, for um, colleagues and clients to kind of volunteer their thinking. We'd love to hear your thoughts on applications and actionability and concerns. Yeah, John in particular would like to hear your concerns oh, and your self-doubts. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> yes. Can you beat me? <laughs> we'll also follow up um, with some results from the broader HRW team on the Big Five um, questionnaire and how we kind of fall out as a company, which might be very illuminating in and of itself. Um, but until next time, that's goodbye from us. So bye. bye.